right, all right, people. What's going on? First of all, how you doing? Thank you so much for coming back and tuning in to Just So We're Clear, hosted by me, Hanley Hofer, and my co-host, Marissa True. What up, Marissa? Hi, hi. How are you today? <sighs> well, <laughs> well, yes, that little giggle was uh, our guest joining us. Marissa asked how I am today. It's a loaded question. We'll get to that. But before we roll on with the show, introducing to you our guest for this episode, she's a TV host, she's a chef, she's a food writer, she's got her own YouTube channel, she's a blogger, she does it all. It's none other than Sarah Benjamin. Hey, girl. Hi. Hi. Sorry, that was so rude. My phone totally announced my arrival. (laughs) (laughs) For a second, I was like, Marissa, but it's okay. (laughs) I know. I'm way more professional than that. It's like episode 11. I got it. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> the other episode, my dog was barking in the background. So this is what happens when you record at home. Um, let's bring it back to the question. How are we right now? Sarah, how are you doing? Um, ups and downs, you know, like in general, I've always worked from home, you know, the last few years. So it's not a huge adjustment for me, this whole like staying at home thing. But I think, like, especially as a content creator, and I think you guys will get this, it's like suddenly you feel the pressure to, like, produce so much content because, first of all, people are consuming way more content. But also, uh, I don't have the excuse of, like, going out or having events to attend or even meetings to attend. So now it's, like, the pressure is on. So that's kind of... It's fun, you know, doing the content, but sometimes I put the pressure on myself, so it's kind of, like dealing with that yeah relates so hard to that and and also because when because you produce your own content as well and you plan it out and kind of when you're when you're sort of like a solo act like that the only person you can hold accountable is yourself oh so when you don't deliver I get it girl I really tear myself down over it and also I think it's in part to do with the fact that we can't go out so your inspiration sort of funneled itself down to your own household and you just think, Oh, why can't I think of anything fresh and creative in you? And it's like, well, you stripped away about 90% of your inspirational material. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a writer and I'm just staring at empty word documents being like, <laughs> something's got to come out. Right. <laughs> like eventually, it's all like swirling around in your head. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's like a really creative place to be in your own head, but sometimes it's like mm, too much going on in here. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the club of overthinkers. <laughs> oh, I thought I was president of the club. Am I not? Hey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Basically, we're building up this club with every episode because every like a lot of our guests have been like, I just can't stop thinking. We're like, you too? You're, yeah, us as well. <laughs> I think it's just a common struggle that we're all dealing with. And I think also people who don't, who aren't familiar with overthinking because it was never really like they were never anxious and never really stressed them out are now experiencing it for the first time. And they don't know what it is. They're like, what are these panicky emotions? And we're like, Oh, hi there. Let me introduce you. (laughs) That is so true. So many of my friends are, you know, I'm sure they've experienced anxiety before, but I think it's the first time they felt like they should verbalize it. You know, mm, and actually, yeah. it's kind of a good thing because I think people are talking more openly now because we have that kind of common anxiety factor, which is the whole COVID 19 thing. And I think because we're sharing this experience, people feel like, oh, you know, I can talk about 
how this is making me feel because everyone is going through the same thing. Yeah. One thing I am realizing is that when people ask you, how are you? It's a lot more genuine. Like it's no, it's one, cause they're going through something. So everyone has this, like this inner nurturing mama comes out of all of us. And we're like, but how are you really? Like the other day, just on email, you know, just like a very basic, like, hope you're doing well. It's just like the first line. It's like a format. People are replying with like, I'm okay. My mood goes up and down. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> we're only two emails in and I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a lot of typical work emails, like where you follow that format. And I always, yeah, I always used to start with, hi there, hope you're well. But now I'm like, I sincerely hope you're well. <laughs> yeah. I hope you're healthy over there. Cause like, I don't know what they're doing. Is. I just, I truly do hope, like I want you to be safe and healthy and yeah. I mean I don't I don't think they see it I think they're just like oh this girl added a word to her sentence no, <laughs> people as a receiver of those type of emails people yeah. like we feel it so I guess a silver lining or some sort mm-hmm. of tick in this fucking <laughs> shit show is that people are being a lot nicer to one another yeah, I yeah. love it when we all panic together <laughs> <laughs> we're bonding through panic yes <laughs> okay so Sarah a little bit of a background of your story. I remember watching you on the Asian Food Network, like, and I'm sure Marissa can agree with this. We are both mm-hmm. extreme foodies. So being a TV or a, a cooking host is probably the best kind of production job out there, right? Like, I mean, it's for me especially, it was pretty much the dream job. I grew up watching Jamie Oliver, Nigella Lawson, and thinking, you know, how, I mean, it doesn't really seem like a real job that you can aspire to. I was like, I mean, that would be fun, but it's not a concrete life plan. So I never worked towards it. I really, I really love writing. I always wanted to be a food writer. So that seemed, you know, like a real job that I could work towards. So that was always what I was hoping for. And then I kind of fell into this by accident. I joined a competition and <laughs> that's how I got this job. So in that way, it's, it is a bit of a fairy tale job. You know, I wasn't like on any path that led to it. It, it just kind of happened. So it is the dream job. So what was the competition that you entered and like, how did you come across it? Um, it was called Food Hero and it was organized by the Asian, it was called the Asian Food Channel then and Food Network in Asia. And um, my friend told me about it. She was like, oh, I think you would be perfect for this. Uh, you have to join. And it was really strange. I had never been in front of a camera before. And I I don't know, it's not the kind of thing I would normally do, but something just kind of like, you know, nagged at me inside, like you should just do this so that you can say that you have no regrets. So on the last day of the application, I filmed a video. Uh, my ex actually filmed it for me. And it was like really, really shit video. I didn't tidy the kitchen. It was a mess. I obviously had no intention of anyone actually seeing it. I just thought I would do it. Anyway, I got uh, accepted and then I got into the top four and then there was a little competition and I won the competition. So the prize was the job and that's how it happened. And how, how long ago was that? Ooh, six years ago now. Yeah, we've had this conversation before, Sarah, but you and I sort of entered the hosting network scene at around the same time, but it took us a few years to actually meet in person. Mm -hmm. We were like, I know you. And you're like, I know you. It's like, how did we just meet? Um, 
It's also funny. We, well, also, Marissa also has experience in hosting. Marissa was a host for a uh, football channel. So oh, yeah. Look at that. It was very different. It was a very different uh, niche to what I thought I'd be presenting because I still remember the day he said, how much do you know about football? And I went, absolutely nothing. I played when I was nine. He went, great. Can you read out loud? I went, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like my path, my path to TV production was very different because it was very much like, oh, it's a fairly looking local looking girl who can uh, read clearly out loud. I was like, yeah, I can do that. I yeah. To this day, no idea what's going on in football. Really? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I love that. It's like a deep, dark secret. Like, I don't, I only know what a goalie is. Like, that's it. I mean, okay. So I did at the time, I did study a little bit because <clears throat> I was professional. But um, the moment that job ended, I was like, I'm sorry, who now? What? <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like it was you are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like if football was my passion, then absolutely, you know, it would have, turned out very differently well I feel like for you and your journey was that competition like that was literally just the gateway to everything that you were sort of born to do because that was your passion right yeah food is definitely my passion I for me I I kind of think of hosting as like a real life version of writing does that make sense so in my mind it's still very much about what I love which is you know, telling stories about food or sharing things, but it's just that you're saying it instead of writing it. So when I think about it that way, I feel like it makes a lot more sense to me how I ended up here. Hmm. Hmm. And so growing up, when did you, like what sort of triggered your passion for cooking? Was there a moment or did you just grow up, you know, loving to eat and make food? What was it? Uh, well, I really loved to eat when I was a kid, you know. Um, <laughs> my family is really into food. So my mom is Chinese, Singaporean, um, Peranakan. And, you know, my Singaporean side of my family is very close. So there are a lot of big family meals and a lot of food on the table. You know, people just kind of coming together all the time. So I always associate food with happy family moments mm. so I think that was like a big deal to me because I'm an only child so those big meals are when I get to hang out with my cousins who I'm very close to so I think I associate you know entertaining and having dinner parties with getting to see my cousins and not being such a lonely only child anymore I mean that makes sense as well for me because I I, I can relate to that because my mom is also Chinese pranakan and uh, Marissa's mom is Indonesian. And mm -hmm. I think this sort of the setting that you built just from that story, I think we all have our own versions of it where all the aunties gather around and they're all like picking together to create this intricate like rumpa or something like that. And they're all comparing recipes and like dropping like who's their dealer for this sort of like ulam or something <laughs> like that, you know? Um, uh, yeah, food, it definitely is family and, and love and especially Asian food. Mm -hmm. Like there is a, there is a new level because it just takes so long to prepare each dish, you know, like the ingredients, if you do it from scratch. So yeah, I totally relate to that. Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up, um, helping my aunt before every Hari Raya, she would make all the cookies. So 
you know, obviously when you go to every single relative's house, there's all the snacks that you could ever want. And then obviously you sit down for like your 10th lunch of the day because the fasting season's over. <laughs> Not that I'm particularly religious, so I never fasted. So for me, it wasn't even like, a, oh, all the food I've missed. It was very much like, oh, there's more. Um, <laughs> and, and I remember helping make all the quick cookies and just eating like baseball size amounts of dough while my aunts cooked and it was just it yeah it was always like a happy memory because you knew that it was when everyone was coming together mm-hmm. and it was so different to the other side my so on the other side my dad's english mm-hmm. um and that sort of food culture it was it was still there and it was still about bringing people together but it was just so different so different because you're <laughs> half british as well right yeah and i went to university in the uk as well so i was there for five years and although, you know, when I was growing up, we would visit the UK um, every couple of years with my dad and see his family. It's very different living there. The way the Brits think about food is very different from the way we think about it here. <laughs> where, where in England did you live and where is your family from there? So my dad is not English. He's Welsh. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yeah, ah, okay. Family. And I went to university in Edinburgh, in Scotland. So, so yeah. did I. Oh, really? No way. <laughs> <laughs> when were you there? I was there 2010 to 2014. Oh my God, I was there 2008 to 2012. So we overlapped by two years. Yeah. Oh my God, that's crazy. That's amazing. I was not expecting... So Hanley told me before this that you were half British, but I did not know you went to the same university. Oh, hello. <laughs> 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 oh my God, that's so exciting. But yeah, no, I completely get what you mean about English food culture. It's very different. Because, I mean, there's a reason why there are all these memes that mock it for just being, like, beige. Okay, so my my white side is German. But the, <laughs> the German food culture is, is uh, different from the Brits. Can, for those who are tuning in, who not, are not really getting at what you mean by the Brit food culture is a little different to our Asian. Maybe you guys can explain it a bit more. What do you mean? So for me, I won't, you know, abide by anyone. You know, Americans love to make fun of British food. Like it's gross, whatever. I disagree with that. I think British food is great. I think London has one of the best restaurant cultures in anywhere in the world. But, you know, I think it's a very different way that they think about it. So when I was in university, it would be quite difficult to convince my British friends to spend 20 pounds on a nice meal rather than on beers at the pub. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To them, okay. yeah, you get together for a meal to hang out, but we could also hang out over beers at the pub. The meal itself, I don't know, it doesn't seem quite as important. I think things have changed a lot. I mean, I was there 10 years ago, so. Mm. Oh, no, I'm I'm completely on the same page. I remembered, so I, I remembered scraping all my money together so that I could afford like a, like, a Michelin starred lunch mm-hmm. in Scotland because I mean, I completely agree with you. British food, it's got a reputation for being bland and boring, but it is some of the best food I think I've ever had. And yeah, exactly. Everyone at that point in their lives just wants to spend all their money on alcohol. So trying to get them to invest in a meal is very different when they weren't even planning on eating that night. So <laughs> Especially in Scotland. (laughs) Especially in Scotland. (laughs) 
but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a strange contrast because I feel like also back in Asian culture, meals are not just a lot more communal, but the servings are so much bigger. Like while you go to a restaurant in the UK, they're all single. Nobody shares. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. That's one thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about the fact that no one shares food in the West? It's weird. Even when it's Chinese or Indian food. You know, if we're going to have a steak each, fine, I get it. But I find it really bizarre when they're like, okay, I'm going to have chicken korma and rice. Then I'm like, can we share so that I can get a vegetable? But it's, you know, it's weird. You know, you're going to have a whole plate of chicken korma (laughs) and rice. So... How do I get in on some of that chicken karma? I'll give you some of my vegetables. But, you know, it's, it's just a strange concept. <laughs> when did it turn into some kind of like bartering marketplace? Like also, <laughs> if you're only going to eat your chicken korma, where's your flavor profile? Like where's the diversity? Are you going to mix <laughs> the cream with the spice? Like where, no. where's the balance in your meal? I don't... It, Frankly, I also means- love how in the West, some mar- restaurants are marketed because they're shareable and people are like, we get to go there and food i'm like don't what isn't that just i get it guys <laughs> it's very trendy now you know family style oh yeah family yeah. Style. oh passionate feeling towards sharing food that's for sure no but the thing is i don't think share i don't know I, I i i don't know if i'm speaking for you guys as well but i get quite aggressive about it because i'm like how do you not want to experience everything on the table how do you look at your own plate and think that's enough like but Did you know, I have a general and I like, tell me if you guys agree, but for me, it says so much about a person about what they're willing to eat and what they're willing to try. Yes. Like their dining habits says a lot about how they live their life. Best way to get I to know someone totally. on a meal. But then, so since we're now in lockdown, have you seen like your cooking habits change? Like are you getting more aspirational or are you just kind of going back to home comforts? Like, what are you doing? Well, actually, yeah, I'm getting definitely more aspirational. I feel like suddenly I have so much time to try things that I've been putting off for a long time. Um, I haven't gotten around to all of them, but, you know, I really want to make croissants and I feel like this would be the perfect time to make it. But then again, it's like, if I make, 20 croissant, what am I, I'm not going to eat them all, right? I mean, I might, (laughs) you know, it's okay to eat them all. Yeah. The other day I made like a giant tray of moussaka. I'm like, well, and I live alone. I'm like, this is, this is too much. I definitely finished it. (laughs) (laughs) Breakfast, lunch, dinner, Greek food for like three days. Yeah. But then where did you, where did you learn to cook? Was it just through, you know, being in the kitchen with your family or was it, did you, get any formal education through it no so my parents are both academics uh so for them if you need to know anything the answer is in a book Mm. so when i was a kid and i expressed you know a vague interest in cooking they bought a giant pile of cookbooks like kids cookbooks all sorts of cookbooks and they kind of just gave it to me and yeah they were like go ahead so i just went in the kitchen my parents are really chill they're not the type that you know would be like oh don't play with fire don't touch the knife they're like go ahead do whatever so that's really how I learned and I would force my family to eat meals cooked by me I remember cooking my first three course meal when I was eight what do you know what you served you were I do remember actually I it was a carrot and ginger soup and 
um, I think there was like a cashew nut chicken. <laughs> there was like no theme to the meal. I don't know why cashew nut chicken came after carrot and ginger soup. Well, what was dessert? I don't remember dessert. I think it had something to do with grapes, but yeah. That is so sweet. Wow. <laughs> That's definitely not what I was doing at eight years old. I guess it's also at those ages, like that. that's pure passion. I don't know. I think I love, I think I've always been a little bit of a control freak, even when I was a child. So I think I love being able to produce something that, you know, I can control every aspect of, you know, mm. I'm in charge of how much of this goes in, I'm in charge of the heat. And I think I like that a lot. That's mm. probably if I'm to be, you know, a bit uh, psycho and, and analytical about this, then that's what it is. Hmm. So going back to your experience growing up in Singapore, how did you find, because I mean, as we mentioned before, Hanley's mixed race, I'm mixed race, you're mixed race. Like, how did you find that experience growing up? Like, did you, this is, a, this is something that we've discussed a few times before. And it was actually something that came up in our previous episode where we had people ask in their questions and it was the, what it was like to grow up mixed race in a very multicultural society like Singapore. Yeah. What was it like for you? Yeah. It was in- interesting. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't, I don't know. I think people have this idea that it's like great growing up mixed. I don't know why I, I, I get a lot of this, you know, when I meet people and they find out I'm mixed. So I was like, oh, that must be so nice. It is nice. Like I really love that I have all these cultures in my family. I think it's really shaped me to be who I am. And it's made me really curious about the world, you know, growing up with kind of different mindsets versus just one. But it wasn't always, there were, I definitely did go through some minor identity crises when I was growing up, for sure. I can remember oh. them, you know, like, where do I fit in? And I think it's, a lot of it actually came from people outside my family. My, my parents were always really good about it. They always, you know, made sure, they really made it clear to me. They always said something to me that was, that stuck with me t- till today. They said, you know, you're not half British, you're not half Chinese. I mean, we think we always, I still say it like that, I, I'm half Chinese. But they said, you're not half of a whole, you are Chinese, and you are British, and you are Jewish, and you are Peranakan, you're everything. These are just like layers, and they're not, you know, you can't break them down into fractions. You're not half the Chinese person that another Chinese person is, you know? Because I, you know, I speak Mandarin at home, my family is culturally very Chinese, but I think people get very hung up on these fractions. Like, oh, you're half Chinese. So why do you speak Chinese? Like, oh, why do you speak Mandarin? I'm just like, why, why wouldn't I? I don't understand that. So that was a big struggle. I mean, to, to convince people. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like to in different seasons of, of the year of my life, the cultural identity crisis is it still comes and goes very much so and it is brought on by other people i think one ex- the thing that we need to also bring up is that we are mixed race all of us have common um experiences with that but i mean you grew up in a local school system right and marissa and i grew up in an international school system and i think what it was in in one of the key different things of our experiences is that we grew up with other mixed race people so yeah. I don't know about you, Marissa, but for me, when it was when I left school and entered the real world, when I was like in my late teens, 
when I, that's when I actually started feeling more culturally confused than I was growing up because suddenly I had the reactions that you were talking about. Suddenly I had people being like, what, huh? How come, why are you like this? It was never enough for me to be like, no, I'm Singaporean. And if they looked confused, which they always did, I have to then explain myself and be like, no, my dad's German. Like I would never say I'm half German because I don't, I don't feel German, but I would have to be like, my father's German. That's why I'm tall. Like, (laughs) because you could see they're confused. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me anyway, I, the way I see it is when people try to find your different parts, it's sort of like looking at a cake for its ingredients. Like you're looking at it for the flour and the eggs, but you're not looking at it as a cake, which is ultimately the thing that makes it awesome because you've created something new out of basic parts, right? Because when I, so yeah, like Hanley said, we went to the same school. We had very similar experiences in terms of we were surrounded by this super international community and it really didn't matter if you were mixed because, you know, you had the Peruvian kid in class or the Uruguayan kid or the Spanish or the, like the Singaporean, the Chinese, the Hong Kong, like everything, right? So there was really no limit in diversity. So there was no ever trying to put anyone in that box. Mm-hmm. And what became interesting was when I went to university, I thought to myself, my point of difference going to the UK as frankly, what I assume to be sort of like a homogenous, just white monoculture. Um, I came in thinking it'll be good that I can be like, I'm half Singaporean, half English. And then when I got there, I met this beautiful girl and, she, and I told her where I was from. And she went, Oh my God, that's amazing. I'm half Brazilian, half Japanese. And I went, Oh, that one's cooler. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, or like this girl who was like, I'm half Norwegian, half Zimbabwean. And I went, Oh my God. <laughs> the benchmark shifted so much, but the struggle I came up against was, um, people asking where my accent was from because depending on who I talk to, sometimes it sounds British, sometimes it sounds American and it's not a conscious thing. But Mm -hmm. when someone else speaking to you thinks, oh, you're putting on that accent. And then like Hanley said, I had to be like, no, but my dad's white, which is why I have this. It kind of discounts yourself, like discounts you as an individual sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other side of the coin, I remembered when I moved back to Singapore and started working, the first thing someone said is, Oh, you're a coconut. I was, I'm sorry, like, brown outside, but inside you're actually pretty white. And I was like, wow. It's really offensive. <laughs> I don't think I took it as offensive because I was kind of like, I am a coconut. <laughs> you're a kinder but, surprise, girl. Yeah, but it's kinder just... Egg surprise. It's interesting that like, because I, I will admit that when people asked in general, oh, what was it like growing up mixed? It should have been, so, it must have been so cool. I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I never really considered that it might've been more difficult, at least in your case. I mean, it, now I'm, I feel I'm like very reconciled with it, but I, I had kind of a similar experience to you going to school in the UK. So when I was growing up in Singapore and I was in a local school, um, a lot of my friends they talk to me as if I'm white. They would always say it, you're white, you know? But to me, I'm, I'm like, am I? <laughs> I don't really, you know, my dad, yeah, he's British, but he came in 1964. He's lived here most of his life. You know, I, I speak Mandarin to my grandmother. So it was very frustrating to keep hearing, 
you know, someone else tell you what you were versus listening to what you say you are. And I kind of went the other way. I was like, okay, fine. If you guys think I'm white, I'm white. Then I'm, I can't wait to go and study in the UK and like be British and like never come back to Singapore. And I'm going to be like, why? No, whatever. You know, and I, I had this kind of idea like, oh, once I go there, I'll feel so at home and I will, you know, finally have a place that I belong fully and I will love it there. And then I, <laughs> I went there <laughs> and everyone there was like, oh, you're a Chinese. <laughs> oh you're Chinese oh yeah when <laughs> oh, that's the thing people don't get like I try to explain that to people here you know over over there people think I'm Chinese they're like how can that be you don't know Chinese everyone sees what's unlike themselves so you know I think after that whole experience I was like you know what I'm not just ex- I've just accepted that this is who I am maybe people don't understand it but I need to be okay with it so yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it, right? It's it's really coming to accept our wholeness. And I love the analogy you put at it at the beginning because that's something that I never really considered about my race before that. You're right. We're not halves. We are as we are. Like, mm-hmm. Everyone's we're cakes. <laughs> we are this. But um, I was just saying this to Marissa before you jumped on the call. But one thing that I, I feel when I travel as well, it's in Singapore... I feel like I'm not truly looked at as Singaporean. Like people are like, you know, you're not really Singaporean. And I get that. And I've, I've had it being told to me. I've had to take out my, my pink IC to prove that it's pink. You know, I've had to prove, I've had to prove my nationality to my fellow, fellow Singaporeans because of their unable to put me in a box. Like it is stupid, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's also the same. But then when I travel, I'm like, Oh no, I'm Asian. Like, Full in full. Like when I'm in the West, I'm Asian, but for some reason, when I'm here, it's I don't know. People are a lot more comfortable if I'm just like, yeah, sure, I'm European. But Sarah, yeah. do you feel like when you're with your extended family, you feel more at home? Like, do you feel more Singaporean, or do you feel foreign in your own family environment? Um, with my family, the ones that I I am close to, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties. I think you know, we've all grown up together, so they really get it. Um, but often, you know, Chinese New Year, the, the types of relatives that you only see once a year, mm. I, I still get a lot of comments. Like wh- one time I helped my grandmother get food at, you know, one of our family gatherings and I, I gave it to her. I was like, oh, grandma, like in Chinese, I, I said, oh, I've gotten you some food. And one of the relatives was like, wow, even though she looks like a foreigner, she can get food for her grandmother. I was like, What? Oh my what god! What is that got to do oh with anything? Oh my god! Like, For me, my grandma, like you know that, right? <laughs> like, she's my blood. Like, oh, filial piety is like, oh, even though she's a Westerner, which I'm—I mean, culturally, I'm not. I grew up here, so I don't. Anyway, that kind of stuff does happen. Oh, I—I I would get that too, but it would be this sentence: "Wow, you know how to eat that?" I'm like, what oh my god, yes. What do you I mean? Of course, I know how to eat. What? Do you- you put it in your mouth. Like you, you know, yeah. that is a common sentence that I, I would get. Yeah. Cause what sort of is that about usually? Yeah. Cause the reason I ask is that, um, I found growing up with, so on my mom's side of the family, I think I have about 12 or 13 cousins. Um, and then my dad's side of the family, I have one. And 
I so when I went to British school here growing up, I had a very posh accent. I'd be like, Daddy, can I please have a glass of water? Oh my and God. like it no. would throw people back. But then the moment I was with my cousins on my mum's side, it was I think it's called code switching, but I went straight to <laughs> English. Like flawless English. And I would just talk to them as if it was normal. And my dad would be like, What are you what are you doing? I was like, Oh, I mean, the cousins, they're here. Like, how am I gonna that's how we talk. And it was just so, but then obviously that Monday would come around and I would go to school and be like, hello. Just, <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> yeah. Sweet tea. <laughs> yeah. So I, and at that point in time, I thought, no, I feel very Singaporean when I'm with my cousins. But now when we've grown up and I feel like my, I don't code switch anymore. I, I don't start speaking Singlish when I'm around them. Mm-hmm. It's almost made me feel, even though they're my family, I'm still more foreign with them and I guess it sort of relates back to what you were saying with the people you see once a year suddenly feeling like they have like they can commentate on how strange you are in the family environment Mm. yeah Yeah. I know I know what you mean and it's actually really interesting you talk about cousins because my cousins are I mean they're full Chinese their parents are both Chinese but they went and studied in the states for high school, all three of them. So, you know, they are really good at code switching. You know, when they speak to Americans, they, they have an American accent. But then the thing is, people still look, you know, just based on our appearances, people look at them and say, oh, they're the Chinese ones. Mm. Mm. It's really interesting because I feel like, you know, it's the world is changing. Everything's becoming more multicultural. But we we're st- we still had these experiences and we'll be telling our grandkids one day, maybe the world will really all be beige at one point, but we'll be telling our grandkids one day that we actually had to go through these experiences to explain ourselves so that people would feel more comfortable with having to box us based on our outside appearance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely at that. Oh, oh my God. I feel like I, we're at this change. <laughs> I'm so sick of this word, especially during the time of Corona. Everything's like, everything's going to change after this. Everything's going to change. But, you know, we, we are. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, like, things are definitely getting better. Just based also on, like, how many mixed kids are out there now. You know, mm-hmm. it's become so normal versus, I feel like, when I was growing up, you know, in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think people will gradually begin to understand that you know we're not just like some of different fractions but we're also you know we're I don't know how to put it it's like you know it's like a dish you know you put all the ingredients in like you said with the cake it's not just flour sugar eggs when you put it together you you're still a cake it doesn't matter what flavor you are Yes, I love, we brought the conversation back to food, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) It went 360. Which leads on to my next question, which is, as as a food writer, host and presenter for, you know, a food channel, how do you sort of, how do you connect those dots so that you can sort of portray that whole self into your work rather than like, you know, exclusively cooking one cuisine or whatever, but you're showing like the diversity of your own experience through the food yeah. on the plate? Well, I think, um, especially with the network, they've kind of evolved with me at the start, I think, because I was the only Singaporean on the channel. 
they were like, oh, you're representing Singapore. We want you to do Singaporean dishes. And I like that, but I actually had a, I was actually pretty self-conscious about representing Singapore. I had this idea that people would look at me and say, how is she Singaporean? Because that's what I had gotten for so much yeah. of my life. Like what you said, Hanley, like, oh, you're not, you don't look Singaporean. How can you be the person representing us as a country? Mm-hmm. So, but slowly they kind of decided, oh, she's mixed. Let's have her do fusion food, what they call fusion food, which is actually how <laughs> I cook. I don't really consider it fusion food. I just cook what tastes good, but it just doesn't have to be authentic. So I feel like the longer I work and the more people know me and my cooking, the less they are going to overthink it. They're just like, oh, this tastes good. So that's fine. And that's really all that matters to me. But I also checked this out though. Sarah, I was stalking your websites before this chat and one of the dishes that you shared that like, we just have to try it, okay? Marissa, check it out. It's the Gula Malaka bread pudding. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> that is... Oh, hello. <laughs> the best sugar on this earth with yes. custard and bread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> but, so the question I wanted to ask, well, it wasn't really a question. It was more of a comment based on what you've just said, which is they essentially when you started work they sort of they had set they had sort of defined it for you so you sort of knew the scope of the dishes that you were to create which was local singaporean like quintessential singaporean and then well, I, I think they wanted everything so they also had me do like european food you know okay like pastas and everything so but, but yeah. what's interesting is that they sort of based that assessment off of you being mixed right mm-hmm but then we'll have chefs like Jamie Oliver making jerk chicken and then Nigella Lawson, who I think is like heritage, her heritage is Italian. So then she's counting herself as Italian. It's like, well, we don't really think of them as, oh, they're mixed. We're just like, this is a chef cooking a breadth of different international dishes. Mm. Yeah. It was, you know what it's like? It's like crispy rendang gate. Do you remember from MasterChef? Yes. Oh my God. I was so embarrassed for the MasterChef judges. But it was the it was the same sort of thing where like you're. Wait, t- I don't know what that is. What do you mean? What's you should explain it. So it was exactly like Rindangi a la MasterChef, and if you don't know what happened, essentially they I think they had a Malaysian contest. It's a British show, and they had a Malaysian contestant attempt to make rendang for one of the competitions. And if you don't know what rendang is, it's almost like a it's like a coconut curry typically made with beef and it's very complex and it's slow cooked and it takes a long time and a lot of effort to make. And so when they presented the dish and it's, I'll admit it's not the most aesthetically pleasing dish, it's stewed beef. So it, it doesn't look particularly pretty, but the judge took one bite of it and said, no, see, this should have been crispy. And any, any good Malaysian, Singaporean, Indonesian, if rendang is in your culture, you know the beef is supposed to be fall apart, tender. It's who, supposed said it's, to, who said it's supposed to be crispy? The judge, That's who's wrong. a qualified chef. And that was the thing where everyone blew up because they were like, how could you be so fucking ignorant if you, you know, you're an expert of the food world and you don't know what Asian cuisine is like? And so, yeah, it's just, it baffles me that like the benchmark for, I don't know, culinary prowess still isn't Asian enough given the complexity of the food that we make out here, you know? Right. right. Yeah, totally. 
but yeah, looking at um, like looking at what you what you cook and what you produce, it's it's kind of showcasing that like that is out here, that complexity, that like the layering, the thought. But also, you shouldn't have to label yourself as like the Asian chef or the mixed chef. Like they they need yeah. to figure it out a bit more and a bit better. Totally, but I also feel like. I, there's a space for everyone and I think there are a lot of people doing very authentic very you know classic recipes and they are cooking laksa the same way it's been made for five generations and you know and I love that like I think we really need to preserve our food heritage but that is not <laughs> that's not um, what I do because I feel like I don't know if it's because I grew up mixed, but to me, I don't want to get too hung up on these sort of traditions. You know, when people start saying, oh, this is the way it has to be made and there's no room for innovation. I feel like that, that is a little bit overprotective. Mm, and yeah. it always reminds me of people telling me, oh, you don't look Singaporean. I know <laughs> it sounds like a stretch, but that's how it feels to me when they say, oh, laksa has to be made this way or Chinese food must be made this way. Right. And you ask why? And they say, just because it's always been that way, I feel that's very, you know, backward looking. And I, I personally think that as long as it tastes good and, you know, you do it with respect to the culture that it comes from, I, I don't think that there's no room for change. Oh, I love Maybe. that. That was poetic as well. I feel like everything <laughs> that you're representing in terms of, you know, your identity, your, your background, what you're doing with your life, your passion. Oh. We're very inspirational, Miss Benjamin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on that note, though, just for the uh, respect of time, um, I do have to kind of let us wrap this up. So before we go off, what's the next step for you? What are you focusing on? Um, I actually, during this whole lockdown period, I'm trying to get back to why I started doing this in the first place. And I'm trying to write more. So I still... I'm really into making, you know, all my video content and all that, but I don't want to forget why I love what I do in the first place. So I started my food blog 10 years ago. My God, that's terrifying. 10 years has gone by. But I really want to start writing more and hopefully maybe produce a cookbook sometime in the future. Yes, we're totally I mean, here for it. Yes. If there is gula, malaka, bread and butter pudding in that book, I will buy a copy before yeah. we're making we're <laughs> making what we're gonna make it in just to celebrate this episode okay, so <laughs> i am going to wrap this up um to our people who are tuning in sarah where can they find you online um, you can follow me on instagram at sarah huang benjamin i'm on facebook i'm on youtube all under the same name and you can find my website i am actually in the process of creating a new one so look out for home body food club and that's where i will be writing and sharing stories from now on and you're that's also doing food. your your private dining experience right yes well that's obviously on hold right now um hopefully in the future sometime i would love to actually cook for people and have them come into my home and do special events and stuff like that but uh, i'm not even thinking about it right now <laughs> wait before we go you said it's called Homebody Food Club? Mm. Yep. Can I join? <laughs> yeah, it's important. It's for everybody. I love food and I'm a homebody. I feel like 
this is a natural membership for me. Oh yeah, <laughs> Marissa just got a big win from uh, getting introduced to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, and also for us guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Just So We're Clear. You can find us on Instagram on Just So We Clear because you know we wanted to be a little street with it, right, Marissa? We took out the wear. but like we'll be. Yeah, I mean, we say we're street. We're not street. We can we're try. Street. We're street. Come on, give it to me. <laughs> Let us be. It's like what we said the other day. Like you buy one pair of Vans, you think you're some kind of skater chick. Like, hey, <laughs> take hey. away R E, and now we're street. Hey. I listen to Avril. That counts to something. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for being our guest on this episode. And we will have you back. Yay. Can't wait. Yeah, thank Thanks you so for much. for having me. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to say bye then. So bye. Bye.